Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I was going through these letters about Mozart's life. And one, for example, was by left by a musician who was writing to Mozart's sister about some of his, his memories. And he recalls going over to Mozart's house to play with his father when Mozart is little. And Mozart's father was a musician and a group of adult musicians go over and little Mozart comes in and says, I want to play second violin. And Mozart's father goes, get out of here. You haven't had any lessons. You can't, you don't know how to play violin. And Mozart starts crying. And so this, the letter writer says, I'll go in with, you know, with him in the other room and play with him. So he'll stop crying. And father says, and Mozart's father says, fine, but just be quiet in there, you know, play, play low. And next thing you know, they start hearing the second violin part coming from the other room. So Mozart's father and the other adult, uh, musicians go in there and they see Mozart playing with made up fingering, by the way, like, cause nobody's taught him. So he's able to play the part just with his own improvised fingering. And then this, this part, I a quote from the letter writer verbatim. He says, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist that he could also play the first violin. And then mm -hmm. he goes on and does that too, even though he hadn't been taught. And this is when his father realizes there's something very unusual. Um, so again, it wasn't quite the complete parent manufactured story that it's sometimes portrayed to be. There yeah. was uh, something driven by 
you know, internally from these kids. And, And so my feeling is, it seems to me that the best chance you would have of having someone like that is still exposing them broadly to things and seeing if something happens to light their fire in that way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. David, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your story by way of my little sister who had actually read an article that you wrote in the New York Times about your your new book, Range, mm-hmm. why you know generalists thrive in a specialized world. And she said, you should really talk to this guy. I think he'd have a lot to teach you, particularly because you're a creative. And so I went and looked at the article. I ordered the book immediately. And I thought, yes, this is absolutely a conversation uh, we need to have. And I want to start with a question that I think is really fitting given the subject matter of this book, and that is, what did your parents do for a living, and how did that end up shaping the choices that you <clears throat> made with your own life and career? My parents are uh, the law firm of Epstein and Epstein. It's just them. Um, mm. And my father uh, works particularly in mental health law, and my mother in elder law, and obviously since uh, old age and and mental mm-hmm. illness <laughs> frequently overlap. They're yeah. often collaborating. Um, how that sort of shaped my approach, you know, I would say, yeah, I think I still have extended family members who are waiting for me to go to law school uh, and, and haven't given <laughs> up yet. You know, when I when I uh, yeah. I thought I was going to be in like a test pilot and then an astronaut when I was a teenager, and then I, I end mm-hmm. up majoring in geology and, and astronomy. Uh, in college, you know, I think there were still some holdouts like, you know, uh, geological astronomical law that, that could be a growth area, (laughs) Um, but no, but nobody, nobody put any pressure on me or anything like that. But, you know, I I don't, I don't really know other than, (laughs) other than I guess I grew up not wanting to be a lawyer for no good reason. I mean, my, my parent, yeah, I guess it's like anything you get older and you realize, you know, suddenly your parents are getting smarter, (laughs) um, but, Uh but really you're getting more mature. Um, and, and I don't really know how it shaped me. They didn't put much pressure on me at all. I mean, it, it is interesting uh-huh. that my father, you know, that uh, particularly my father, but both my parents to some extent, um, more so my father for sure, it mm. intersects with science, you know, psychology and medicine with yeah. his area of the law. And and for me, I started training to be a scientist and got off that track. And now I sort of have this um, this merger of, of science and writing, you know, what some people call skill stacking, where it's like you're not go in trying to be the very best at any one particular thing, but you can sort of merge different things that create your own unique mm-hmm. ground. And, yeah. and and I just certainly didn't consciously ever attempt to imitate that. So maybe we just have similar temperaments. Um, mm-hmm. But but I think that's a commonality for sure. For sure. Yeah. You know, honestly, if there is one thing that I think um, I have really sort of picked up or accelerated an aspect of my my personal development, uh, you know, related to my parents. So when I, li- I I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided to become mm-hmm. a writer, I remember reading that in the yeah. book. And so, and and one of my first jobs, my first sort of steady job, I started. Uh, I took like a night class in journalism, and I started freelancing for a local neighborhood newspaper. And my first steady job was as the guy who starts at midnight. And goes to the morning at the New York Daily News, you know, a New York like hard news kind of tabloid. Um, and th- that was I applied for an internship and got rejected. And basically, they sort of came back to me and ultimately said, "You can you can hang on here if you're willing to start at midnight." Yes, you can imagine nothing happy uh, that's going in a a New York City paper happens between midnight and 10 a.m. for the most part. But yeah. what I did realize, you know, and some people think that is, um, you know, like a useless job or 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 a grimy thing to do. I I sort of disagree. I mean, I tend to think the fact that we glorify reporters who document the deaths abroad when we're in foreign conflicts, but not the ones Mm -hmm. who are documenting them in our own streets. I mean, I took some pride in the fact that every, every person who died by violence would end up in the paper, every single one. Um, you know, and sometimes you see trends and I think that's important. Uh, but a lot of the job was approaching people who were, in some of the most vulnerable moments of their life. And 
that's mm-hmm. something I really took with me to throughout my writing career as I approach people and I want to learn about their jobs or I want to learn about their stories, um, that you're often, you know, at one, whether it's right when you approach them or just something you get to talking about is if they're really going to open up to you, they're exposing some vulnerability. And, and I think my parents, mm-hmm. part of their job is dealing with people at the most vulnerable, often embarrassing moments of their lives, uh, and yeah. doing that with a, an enormous amount of compassion and not bringing your own judgment to it. And I think sort of leaving your personal baggage behind and, and, and judgmental, you know, and, and any judgment behind when you approach people and, and want to talk about their stories is an important thing. And I think that's something that I sort of more consciously recognized as, as one of the tools that's very important to me in what I do. Yeah. It, it's funny because I think you always look at things that your parents give you uh, and recognize in retrospect their value while, you know, <laughs> when they're happening you're like, this is just a pain in the ass. Like, For I think sure. that Indian parents basically instilled discipline. And in it was like, you get straight A's. Like, th- that's all there is to this. And nobody puts your report cards on fridges. It was like, why the hell did you get a B minus? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I, I think I've shared this story before with people who are listening that, you know, I remember the first time I came home and I brought it, this up to my dad is that, hey, this kid at school gets a, a $5 for every A. My dad said, yeah, you get a meal every night. Mm-hmm. So this negotiation is over. Uh, what I, I wonder, I think it's interesting that uh, your parents both being lawyers didn't necessarily encourage any one particular career path, um, which to me explains, I think, a lot about the book itself. And you know, it's funny because it's such a contrast from the environment that I grew up in as uh, an Indian uh, American. And most Indian Americans, probably if you have any Indian friends, have probably told you this. It's like, yeah, you want a good life, become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And um, that is kind of the narrative that is passed on to us over and over and over. Uh, so, so I wonder, you know, when you look at it that early in life, uh, and you know, I know you, this is largely what the book is about. But when you when you talk, think about parents who have particularly young kids or, or you know kids who are in high school, and, and just out of curiosity, are you a parent yourself? Um, what I mean, what kind of advice would you pass on to your own kids if you uh, have children, based on on this perspective that you've developed as a byproduct of this book? And, and what would you tell parents who are listening? about this. Yeah, that that's an interesting, you know, I, I think some of it depends on the temperament of, of a kid. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of interesting work about um, the difficulties sometimes parents face if their children have a different temperament than them. Like th- there's some research that shows that uh, parents of, of adopted children will mm-hmm. often bring them to a hospital for psychiatric care with a much lower level of symptoms than, than their biological children. And the suggestion is that it's because they just don't recognize the temperament as much. And mm. so, um, you know, they're, they're more prone to think that something is really wrong. And so I think some of it, you know, you have to judge the temperament. And for me, I think my parents probably realized that I was very hard on myself and I didn't really need like if I didn't get a good grade, I was going to intercept it on the way home and nobody was going to see it. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I really didn't need anybody. Uh, you know, I, and I think this is true of everything I've done. Like I think about this in terms of when I was a college runner and in a training group, some, a, a good coach realizes that some people need to be managed in order to train more because they won't do enough mm-hmm. on their own. And other people need to be managed to train less because they'll go overboard on their own. Mm-hmm. And so I think some of it is keeping an eye on that temperament. And for me, it was, uh, I, I didn't need to be need to be pushed in that way. Sometime I needed to be sort of pulled back a little bit. Um, yeah. so maybe my parents were a little more like, you know, how, how I described Roger Federer's parents in the book as pulley instead of, instead mm-hmm. of pushy. And I think yeah. I am a parent. Uh, and by the way, you asked, I have a, a nearly six month old, um, who hopefully will not do anything too loud or else he'll be making an appearance on this podcast. Cause he's, that's uh, totally fine. Room. I don't think anybody will complain. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, I actually think of my role as a parent, um, and I'm, I'm wary of giving too much concrete advice. Like I know that in yeah. both of my books, people ask for a lot of advice and I sort of write about questions that really interest me and then hope that they, um, resonate with people that in a way that they can think about how they fit into their life. Right. Cause th- this, this conversation mm-hmm. of how broad or specialized to be, I think is one that is important to everyone at some point, either implicitly or explicitly at some point. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't think anybody could offer a perfect answer to to what an individual mm-hmm. should do, but my hope is sort of those those conversations usually take place purely in the realm of intuition. can i can I bring some research to it to make those conversations more interesting and more productive? And yeah. that certainly happened for me in facing parenting. So the way I think of parenting now is is sort of akin to something that I mention in the the trouble with too much grit chapter. 
and uh-huh. I only mention it in brief, and, and I'm thinking about expanding it maybe when I add an afterword, but the Army's program called Talent-Based Branching, and I know that sounds weird to start off with because I don't want to liken my parenting to, you know, the Army, <laughs> but um, but the Talent-Based Branching program uh, was created when the Army started realizing that in a knowledge economy where people um, who can engage in knowledge creation and problem solving have this incredible amount of lateral mobility and their highest potential future officers were leaving the army in huge numbers. Um, you know, first they tried to throw money at them and the people who were going to stay took it and the people who were going to leave anyway left. And that was a half billion dollars of taxpayer money down the drain. Um, didn't change retention at all. And then they started programs like this one called talent-based branching, where instead of saying, here's your career track, go up or out, they'd say, mm-hmm. here, we're going to pair you with a coach, try this, this career track here, and then reflect on how it fits your interests and abilities with your coach, you know, what economists call match quality. And then try this other one and this other one and these other two, and you'll keep zigzagging and we'll triangulate a better fit for you. And I sort of mm-hmm. see my role, <clears throat> excuse me, I sort of see my role as a parent as the akin to the coach in the talent-based branching process, where early mm-hmm. on to facilitate this diverse array of opportunities and then to, yeah. to help um, my son's reflections so that he gets the maximum amount of learning signal from each of those experiences. I think that's the role of the coach in talent-based branching. And I think that's an analogy to how I'm thinking about parenting at the moment. Wow. It, it's funny because I, yeah, I think of a few different things uh, when I, when I hear you describe that. I don't have kids. So, you know, for me, it's all, you know, I jokingly say like, you know, doing the unmistakable creative has also been like a lesson in parenting for, you know, the kids I'm going to have someday, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, the, the thing that, that is interesting to me, and, and I wonder about this based on your perspective and, and the research that you've done is, is what role context and environment play. And let me give you, you know, a little bit more on that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, for a long time thought my parents' whole career advice of go do something stable was bullshit. And then I, I, I finally came to this sort of moment of empathy and realization that, wait a minute, you guys grew up in a life that was extremely binary, mm-hmm. poverty or, mm-hmm. you know, stability, like there was nothing in between. So I wonder, you know, what role context and environment play in, in how people think about these things um, or, or the outcomes in people's lives when it comes to this whole idea of range. Yeah, I think it, it plays an enormous role. And one of when you were saying that, one of the things that sort of popped into my head was um, if you and this is this is only semi related, but uh, if you look at different countries, so if you look at like the the World Health Organization's ranking of countries by gender equity, uh, what you see is that the the countries that have less freedom of choice for women, essentially will see women concentrated in a much smaller number of careers, basically because the choice is, you know, you can work to survive and and try to have a better life. And there are only a very limited number of jobs available where that really makes a lot of sense for women, where they really have opportunities. So they really cluster in them. And whereas in the countries where they have a lot more choice, you actually see this much you know, greater diversity of women spread across different careers and, and sometimes clustering in different careers or changing careers and things like that. And it's just sort of, I think it's, it's just, um, kind of similar in the sense that when you're facing, essentially you have a limited number of options in, in a lot of contexts and that that's most people in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the decision isn't really being made based on, okay, let's maximize your match quality, right? Again, this, mm-hmm. we, we know that finding a fit with your interests and abilities is really important for your ultimate performance, for your motivation, your resistance, right? As one of the researchers I quote in the book says, when you get fit, it'll look like grit, meaning that if you get people mm-hmm. in a good match, they'll display the characteristics of grit, like resilience and, and work ethic. But there are other ways to get that, right? And trying to yeah. stay out of poverty or improve your life, I think, can also be uh, significant motivating factor and make people more resilient. And, and those, some of those choices I think will overcome, um, some of the other stuff like match quality or fulfillment or all those other things. And Mm -hmm. so I think it's, I think it's an incredibly context dependent for sure. Yeah. So one thing, you you know, uh, you mentioned that you had ran track, you gave us a little glimpse of one of the things that you learned, uh, you know, in terms of, of, you know, coach having to hold you back. What else did you learn from being a runner? that you have applied to being a writer, researcher, journalist? Like, what have you applied to your career going forward from the experience of being a runner? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, for one, I, and, and I wrote about this sort of in my, in my first book, that uh, there's this incredible 
individual variability in response to particular training plans. And so when I went through a lot of the literature on skill acquisition, um, one of the things that surprised me is how different a response people will have to the same exact training. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like one of the most famous exercise genetics study of all time basically put every member of two generations of 98 families on six months of identical cycling training, totally controlled in the lab. These were previously sedentary, but healthy people. And they wanted to see how much people could improve what's called VO2 max, the amount of oxygen they can move through their blood when they're going as hard as they can. And the variation in improvement between people was, uh, you know, more than tenfold. on wow. identical training, on identical training. And of course, identical twins were about nine times more similar than fraternal twins. But even uh-huh. maybe even more interesting than that, the correlation between ability at baseline, so this VO2 max again, your, your aerobic capacity is sort of shorthand. The correlation yeah. between ability at baseline and ability to improve was zero. So on day one of the study, they did a baseline test and say, okay, here are 10 most talented people. Miss 100% of the people who end the study looking the most talented, despite the fact that everyone did the exact same thing, right? <laughs> so, and, and that's, that's like the trend in that sort of literature yeah. where, you know, I think there's a reason why people can do the same diet or the same training and they get very different results. And so I was, yeah. I, before I got into that science, I was kind of attuned to that because you know, being in different training groups and noticing everyone doing the same things and, and uh-huh. often getting more different, not more the same. Yeah. Um, and so I think that attuned me to the fact that I need to kind of put in some personal experimentation to find what's the best training environment for me. And I'm pretty confident mm-hmm. that it's never the first one I start with, cause that would just be luck, right? That, yeah. that I go into whatever it is with this sort of trial and error uh, mindset uh-huh. b- with yeah. trying to sort of customize the training environment to me. And that, that's like, and and there's something, can I, can I give another point about running? Please? please. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's something I learned that from running that doesn't work for me, um, in the, in the wider world, which is, you know, I had a goal book when I was running and you put your running goals and training and all those things. And I transitioned that to my, um, you know, work life when I was done running. And I actually found it was not nearly as useful because the goals in track and field are very black and white. And mm-hmm. that's not the case in, in the rest of the world. And yeah. it's not as clear, you know, exactly when you're making progress, you, you know, you can't time everything every day based on like a, a stopwatch. And so right. eventually I got rid of that and realized it didn't work. And in the reporting of range, something in Herminia Ibarra, the woman who studies like kind of how people find match quality and work how, and how people make successful and unsuccessful career transitions. And, you know, she had this phrase that really stuck in my head. We learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she meant mm. is that there's this whole like industry of personality quizzes and career gurus who right. kind of, yeah, give, give the idea that you can just introspect and know what you should be doing. When in fact, yeah. all the evidence suggests that you actually have to do stuff and reflect on it. And that's how you learn about yourself, which is why when we're younger, we don't exactly know everything about ourselves. You have to, you have to learn about yourself in practice. And so yeah. having dispensed with sort of the, the running goal book for my work life a long time ago, more recently, I picked up what I call my book of small experiments, where at least every other month, I have to, you know, I'll put in a hypothesis basically about something I want to learn about or some skill I want to try to improve. And then I'll find some way to engage in experiments. Sometimes it can be very small and, and mm-hmm. sometimes bigger. And then I'll come back and, and reflect on how that worked. And just having that forces me to kind of get out of my, my rut of competence, you know, my, my inertia of what I'm usually doing. And, and in the writing yeah. One of those experiments in the writing of range involved taking an online beginner's online fiction writing class. And it turned out to pay like mm-hmm. huge dividends for my writing. I went back to my whole manuscript and changed all this stuff basically. Um, wow. But so, so one of the things I learned in running was that the same sort of goal setting actually didn't work well for me. Um, and I've come around to sort of very different approach to that. It's funny because I, 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 when you say that, I can't help but think about how your know, two parents could raise two sets of kids with exactly the same sort of situation. I mean, my sister and I are like, you know, both byproducts of the exact same upbringing with wildly different results based on (laughs) the guidance our parents gave us. Uh, so that's, that's what I think of right when you say that. 
Um, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that really struck me is, you know, you opened the book early on by saying eventual elites devote less time early on to deliberate practice in the activity in which they will eventually become experts. Instead, they undergo what researchers call a sampling period. They apply a variety of sports, usually in an unstructured or lightly structured environment. They gain a range of physical proficiencies from which they can draw. They learn about their own abilities and proclivities. And only later do they focus in and ramp up technical practice in one area. And, it, you know, when, when I, now that I'm talking with you about this, it just kind of hit me. And I even wrote about this in my own book where I said, you know, like the, probably the greatest influence on my life as a creative was that I played the tuba for nine years and I'm not a professional tuba player, but what that, the translation that came from that was discipline and practice to get you know better at something that I had no natural aptitude for. But I, I think that the thing that is, is fascinating to me about this, and I, I think where I want to start is, is by talking particularly about education, because I know you you alluded to it, you quoted research in it. Uh, you know, you go to college, I mean, even hell, even parental advice, you know, I, I still to this day will never forget the conversation my dad was having with uh, one of my uncles about his son. And he said, you know, what does he want to do? Does he want to study computers, become a doctor and engineer? I was like, wait a minute, this kid is like 15 years old. You've limited his whole future mm -hmm. to four possible outcomes already. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the thing is that you've written about range, yet the entire system is designed in such a way not to help us cultivate range. Like you go to college and I, you know, I, I think it's borderline insanity to ask 18 year olds to do, figure out what they want to do with their life because they don't have enough data points. Like you said, it's practice. I didn't know that I wanted to do this as a writer or interview people. I just did it a lot. And I realized it was that I found it engaging and that's what drew me to it. So I, I wonder, you know, how you, in, particularly in the wake of this book, the college admission scandal and the rising cost of tuition, how you think about that quote that I just read from your book. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that college admission scandal, first thing, by the way, the only way that I can make sense of that scandal, um, because yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I just followed it sort of in the news, no closer than the next guy. Yeah. And, but like, it seems some of those kids didn't even really want to go to college or, or at least, mm -hmm. you know, one or two of them. The only way I can make sense of that scandal is if those kids were basically like pieces of jewelry for their parents, right? They wanted yeah. to show them off because it didn't seem like they were trying to do it in the best interest of the kids, right? So, mm -hmm. do it. so that, that's, that, I don't know. I, I can't, that's the only way I can make sense of that. But in terms yeah. of, in terms of sort of the education system, you know, not cultivating range in people. I mean, the education system before pre-college, our education system is still very much based on tenets that came out of Taylorism, you know, the, the basically science of efficient management, which was great for an industrial economy where you were churning out people um, for jobs that are you know, what I, I use the coinage of the psychologist, Robin Hogarth in the book, kind learning environments where people mm -hmm. will be facing this similar task where work next year will look like work last year. And so sort of doing repetitive things is, uh, and having basic competencies is really important, but that's not the life, you know, that's not the world that we work in anymore. And yeah. I think the education system is like a big oil tanker it takes, you know, you got to start steering 40 miles out from shore to get it, uh, to get it docked right. And, and so I think some things are starting to change. And in fact, there's no question if you look at proficiency exams that kids today um, mm. have better mastery of basic skills than their parents did. No question. It's just the challenge has become so much harder, like so much more yeah. conceptual and abstract thought is required in, in modern work. So g going forward to, to higher ed, which you mentioned, I think there are two main issues here, main problems. First is, is what I write about in range called the end of history illusion. This, this psychological finding that at every time point in life, we will all recognize that we have changed a lot in the past based on our experiences and then say, but now I'm pretty much done. And <laughs> at, at every time point in life, we will, we'll say that and we will be wrong. We will underestimate future change at every time point, even when we're very old. Um, but at, at no time is that more true than from about 18 to the late twenties. That's when you undergo mm -hmm. the fastest time of personality yeah. change. And so essentially right at the start of that period, we're telling someone pick now, which, which is really asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know. Mm -hmm. and, and certainly in a world they can't yet conceive unless they have a crystal ball that most people don't. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a particularly bad time to make ironclad long-term plans. And we should be much more oriented toward pick something, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of stealing this idea from the uh, economist and statistician Robert Miller um, is is we should we should orient people toward do the thing that's going to give you a high information signal about whether it fits you or not. That's those mm -hmm. are the things you should dive into first, yeah. where you can get high information signal. And if we look at 
And so to sort of go to the other prong that's kind of related to that, th- this, the question you asked and that I was curious about is sort of addressed by this economist, Ofer Malamud, whose, whose work I write about. Um, when he, he was wondering about specialization timing in higher education, and he found a sort of natural experiment in the higher ed systems of England and Scotland. And basically, the systems in the period he studied were very similar, but the English students had to specialize earlier. They had to pick like when they were about 16 or so, what what program they wanted to, what specific program of study they wanted to try to test into for university. And the Scottish students could, they didn't have to do that. They could sample for the first couple of years of college. They could sample, they could continue taking different classes outside of any sort of focus um, even late into their into their education, and his question was, who wins the trade off? The the earlier late yeah. specializers in these otherwise very similar populations and similar systems. And what he found was that the early specializers do in fact jump out to an income lead because they have more domain specific skills. So mm-hmm. not a huge surprise. Um, but the late specializers, because of their sampling, they end up having higher match quality. First of all, they pick better fits for themselves. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before giving someone only four options, they're much yeah. more likely to end up studying things they hadn't heard of when they got into uh-huh. college, much more likely. Yeah. And so they end up with higher growth rates. And by six years out, they shoot past the early specializers. And then the early specializers end up quitting their entire sort of career fields in much greater numbers. Uh-huh. Essentially, because they were made to pick so early that they made more mistakes, and and when they do do that, though, they then have higher growth rates. So it's good for them to do it, uh-huh. um, but you know they have more disincentive from doing it because they've they've put a lot of time in. And so in the long term, the the people who have a little time to sample, the later specializers win the mm-hmm. trade off. And I think that sort of encapsulates to me what was really one of the themes of the book, which is sometimes the things you can do to get a short term advantage undermine your long term development. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's funny. Uh, you may have, have heard of this book. We had um, Rich Carlgard here, who wrote a, a oh, book yeah, called yeah. Late Bloomers, right? And, and so it. it's funny because I think you know. I think what I, what I like about your way of explaining this is that you backed it up with a lot of research. I mean, he also backed it up with. I felt like his story was much more anecdotal, whereas yours has got a lot more science behind it. Um, you know, both phenomenal books, like with really interesting ideas. One thing that you know, I wondered based on on you know that alone. You know, there's one other thing in here that you said. You know, you said if the amount of early specialized practice in an area area where the key to innovative performance savants would dominate every domain they touched, and child prodigies would always go onto adult eminence. Uh, you know, we've had Anders Ericsson here. So based on having read this book, I know you're familiar with his work. Mm-hmm. And 
what that made me wonder is why do you get some people who actually do figure it out early on? You know, I, I think my sister to me is always like a perfect example. And I think the challenge is particularly with med school is you kind of have to know fairly early whether you're going to go or not. Uh, and that's one of those things that I, I couldn't help but wonder. Why is it that so many people, you know, I can tell you that I did nothing of significance until well, it, like after I became 30. Mm -hmm. um, the first 10 years of my career were a disaster. And by the way, speaking of Anderson's work, I, I took his work on much more directly in my first book. Um, and, I, yeah. and I know him and things like that. But I should say in his book, Peak, there's a little mention where he says this deliberate practice framework, you know, early specialization and 10,000 hours and all that, although I know he doesn't like the the 10,000 hour rule as a moniker. Um, he's, he, there's basically a little part in the book where he says, by the way, this stuff applies to very well-defined fields where we know all the tenets of excellence and where you can get a coach who can tell you exactly what you have yeah. to do. And I'm like, that's, that to me is like the loophole that like become <laughs> everybody book, overlooked basically. Yeah. Um, so what he's saying is this kind of stuff works in kind learning environments. And I agree with that. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know what causes some people to figure it out. You know, Ellen Winner, who I think is one of the most interesting people who studies this, would be a fascinating person for you to, to talk to. She studies prodigies, essentially. Mm -hmm. and oh, Definitely. I'll add her to my list. <laughs> yeah. She has, a, she has a cool book about like myths and realities of, of gifted children. And when she's talking about gifted children, it's usually people who are at like an adult level of performance when they're, you know, before age 10 or something like that. Yeah. Um, and one thing she identifies in them is this sort of rage to master, right? And they'll have an mm. ability in, in a particular area that tends to really outstrip their abilities in other areas in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, but not in all cases. I mean, they are often quite bright in a number of things, but there's some one thing that sort of lights their fire like nothing else does. And I don't know yeah. that anybody knows exactly why that is. I, and I think, I think that even shows up. This, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's an important note that I wish I had actually included in the book and I stupidly cut. But um, again, maybe for the afterward, I'm going to have a 30,000 word afterward. <laughs> or another book. Yeah. Um, oh, goodness. No, I need after both books, I've said no more books. Never again. <laughs> uh, it just takes a period of recovery. But the, the Tiger Woods story, I think we tell a little bit of it um, wrong. So Tiger in 2000 said that his father never once asked him to play golf. It was always him asking his father. Uh, and that it's the child's interest in playing, not the father's interest. So his father facilitated and cultivated an enormous amount of deliberate practice. But mm -hmm. he was at first responding to, I mean, he had been a baseball player. He was responding to Tiger's very unusual display of interest and prowess. And I think Tiger's is the probably the most um, powerful modern development story that exists. So I think that's an important one to know. The second most popular, I would say, is probably Mozart. And mm -hmm. again, I was going through these letters about Mozart's life. And one, for example, was by, left by a musician who was writing to Mozart's sister about some of his, his memories. And he recalls going over to Mozart's house to play with his father when Mozart is little. And Mozart's father was a musician. And a group of adult musicians go over and little Mozart comes in and says, I want to play second violin. And Mozart's father goes, get out of here. You haven't had any lessons. You can't, you don't know how to play violin. And Mozart starts crying. And so this, the letter writer says, I'll go with, you know, with him in the other room and play with him. So he'll stop crying. And father said, and Mozart's father says, fine, but just be quiet in there, you know, play, play low. And next thing you know, they start hearing the second violin part coming from the other room. So Mozart's father and the other adult, uh, musicians go in there and they see Mozart playing with made up fingering, by the way, like, cause nobody's taught him. So he's, able to play the part just with his own improvised fingering. And then this, this part, I a quote from the letter writer verbatim. He says, little Wolfgang was emboldened by our applause to insist that he could also play the first violin. And then mm. he goes on and does that too, even though he hadn't been taught. And this is when his father realizes there's something very unusual. Um, so again, it wasn't quite the complete parent manufactured story that it's sometimes portrayed to be. There yeah. was... Uh, something driven by, you know, internally from these kids. And, and so my feeling is, the, the, you know, those kinds of stories, Tiger and Mozart, incredibly rare, no matter what you do. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that the best chance you would have of having someone like that is still exposing them broadly to things and seeing if something happens to light their fire in that way. Yeah. Um, 
what it is exactly that causes that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not sure anybody knows. <laughs> I think that's been you know, the, the, the quest that I've been on for 10 years. You know, Simon Sinek says, said to me once, he said, your why is that you're obsessed with people who are good at unusual things, which explains the fact that we've had bank robbers and drug dealers as our guests on the <laughs> podcast, along with people like you. Uh, it's funny that you say that because I think about this moment that I had with my seventh grade band director who basically, I remember I just, I wanted to switch instruments from the trombone and he said, well, you can switch to the tuba. And it meant getting out of football practice. And he basically, I don't know what it was the day I picked up the instrument. He said, you're going to make all state band. And when he told me that it was this sort of moment of, I know I will always be an average athlete, but you're telling me I could be somebody as good enough to be the best in the state at this, that. I don't know what it did. It lit a fire under my ass. Like, and up until that point, I remember even going back to see my sixth grade band director when I went to do a concerto at a school in ninth grade. And I still remember this moment from sixth grade band because nothing about this would indicate that I would show up as the kid who make would eventually make all state band. Cause I remember he calls on me and he says, what are the flags on the notes for? And I raised my hand and I said, well, they're for decoration. Hmm. And it was just one of those things where I, I, I always think that, you know, the teacher played such a big role uh, yeah. in that. I, I mean, that, that's interesting you mentioned that. And, and since I have like a weird semantic network in my brain, you had mentioned drug dealers just before this. Yeah. Um, and that, that made me think of when I left, you know, in the interest of expanding my own range, I, I do things that my agent like tells me are ridiculous. Like as soon as my first book came out, it was about genetics and sports. Uh Um, and I was a writer at sports illustrated at the time. I then like left right when it came out and went to this startup called ProPublica startup at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, that does investigative work and spent a year reporting about drug cartels and, or even more so about some of the deals our government gets involved in, in the pursuit of drug cartels. But one of the things that occurred to me while I was doing this reporting and meeting people who were in cartels was that some of these young guys who are ambitious, but going nowhere, someone from a cartel comes to them and essentially gives them a vision of themselves that they, that nobody else around them did and that they themselves hadn't even imagined. And it, and it becomes kind of intoxicating and propels them to do things that are incredibly courageous and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously that energy is directed in a very counterproductive direction for society as a whole, right. but, but it did it was very interesting to me, the sort of the ways by which they were motivated. And and I think one of the the main, you know, of course they wanted money, but I think Mm -hmm. a main driver was in recruitment was often someone coming to these, these young people and giving them this vision of themselves that they hadn't even imagined it, that nobody else had. And that would, you know, engage them in a way that they hadn't been engaged before. And one would wish that that could happen in a more productive manner. But I, I do think that there was a commonality of theme there. Yeah. Well, I remember, so I, it's funny because I, I remember the sports gene being on my list of things to read and, and you know, uh, some, I don't know why I'd never got to it, but I'm going to definitely get it now. And so I think that, you know, the question that comes from that is when you studied athletes, what parts of range did you see, um, in professional athletes, like people who get to the level of sort of NBA basketball player. The other thing that I wonder, this is just a morbid, you know, weird personal curiosity question. So I, I'm a weirdo who doesn't uh, actually watch sports, but I play sports video games religiously. Like I play NBA 2K19 every day. And the thing that I've always been baffled by, and maybe you can explain this to me, is how can somebody be so good that they get to the NBA, but they suck at shooting free throws? That's a great question. And I did a, I did, I did some data analysis stuff for my first book, some of which made it in and some of which didn't. And here's one that didn't. Um, I was curious if players in the NBA would get better at free throw shooting over the course of their NBA career, right? Mm-hmm. Was this like, were they finished products as far as how good they were shooting, but you know, they good, good they were shooting by the time they got to the NBA or, or did yeah. they prove? And the fact was that if you took a you know a huge number of players, obviously some players actually managed to get worse. But if you right. looked at a huge number of players, definitively they get better over their okay. career at free throw shooting, which suggests to me that like you're going to get better just by doing it, right? That's a pretty right. simple non dynamic task. So they're clearly not doing enough of it, right? And, the, and I don't think they're being very thoughtful about it either, right? Like you know my my first debate partner and then running partner Malcolm Gladwell did did a podcast about how. Um, a lot of basketball players uh-huh. should be shooting underhanded free throws, you know, Rick Barry style. Yeah. And, and none of them will do it because it seems stupid. You yeah, because you're like, shooting the granny shot. Like literally nobody in college or the pros. Like how is it that there's that much social pressure not to do it that, yeah. 
know, people who are shooting 40s, 50s percent free throws who would score 10, you know, more points a game, like some of the bigger players won't, won't give it a try. So right. I don't know. I, my, let me tell you my perception about the NBA from having actually been around some teams and things like yeah. that when I was at SI and still sometimes now is that there's so few players in the NBA and the players are so highly skilled mm-hmm. that the NBA more than other leagues has this sort of, um, feeling of everyone is kind of like, don't break anything. <laughs> like yeah. all the strength and conditioning people, the, the coaches is very much don't break anything. And, and I think the sports scientists and physiologists and things who work in the NBA recognize that most players will not develop to their fullest potential in the NBA because there's such, uh, so much emphasis on don't break anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's a real part of why you don't see as much improvement as you can. And, and I'm, who am I, am I to say, what well, maybe that's the right trade off, right? Because there are so few players. Um, but, you know, in most sports, you think of the way that we're going to make this person more injury resistant is to uh-huh. work them hard in certain ways, not to like yeah. not work them hard at all. Um, mm. But, you know, so I, so I think it's a mix, but I think a lot of a lot of players don't get as good as they could, don't see as much improvement as they could in the NBA, because there really is that that theme of yeah. like everybody. Just me, like I said, slowly. the thing that baffles me is that, wait a minute, you're good enough to play at this level. And this seems like an aspect of the game that is like simple in comparison to everything else that you have to do. Like, yeah, I mean, and, and a part of me wonders, does it, you know, speaking of range, is it just something that gets neglected because they're so good at one aspect of the game? And, and you know, what did you notice about this idea of range and people who become professional athletes? Cause I remember, I don't know either whether it was playing the game or whatever it was that LeBron was rec- recruited for both uh, football and basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, Almost all of the athletes who go on to become elite were multi-sport athletes, basically. Yeah. And even if they didn't play those sports formally, they engaged in a lot of unstructured play in other sports. And I think the the people who you do see continuing to improve at the elite level. So, so let's say when I first wrote about this trend um, in sports, this happened when I got – so I criticized some of uh, – a little bit of Malcolm Gladwell's writing in my first book, just in like a couple pages, but it became the thing that everyone fixated on. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't mean that as criticism. It's just, yeah. it's, that's what happened. Um, and so we were invited to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference to have a debate, which is on YouTube, uh, back in, I guess this would have been 2014. Um, that, that conference was founded by the general manager of the Rockets, Houston Rockets, co-founded. And we were there, invited there to debate uh, athletic development. And I had seen he'd written about the importance, you know, primary importance of early head start and technical practice. So I was a science writer at Sports Illustrated at the time. So I said, well, if that's the hypothesis, let's go look at the data. And I saw in almost every sport, you actually see the athletes who go on to become elite have this sampling period where they, they learn those broad skills, they learn about their interests and abilities, and they systematically delay specializing until later than their peers. They have higher amounts of unstructured play. Um, and so when we came off the stage, he was sort of like, you know, what you got me on was that thing that didn't really comport with my hypothesis. You should write more about that. Uh, yeah. And and so that sort of stuck in my head. But that's the trend. But we never hear that. Right. We hear the Tiger mm-hmm. Woods story, even though it's the vast exception. And even though golf is kind of a bad model of most other things that people want to learn. And, right. and I think the players who go on to improve as pros are these you know, more like the Steph Curry mold where you still he was a multi-sport athlete and you still see him doing stuff, embracing you know, he, I think he's just doing it intuitively or for fun or whatever, but what scientists right. would call variable practice, where mm-hmm. he's shooting from all these weird spaces and all these weird angles. And if you see him doing his warm up, right, he's like throwing one handed shots and yeah. he's kicking shots sometimes. <laughs> and th- that, if you like the best principles of motor control. So Robert Bjork, who is a psychologist who coined the phrase desirable difficulties, mm-hmm. which, which refers to um, training and learning techniques that slow you down in the short term, make things harder and more frustrating, but end up with more long-term benefit. He actually said what Shaquille O'Neal should have been doing is not continuing to try like shooting with one hand or the other hand from 15 feet. He should have been shooting from 14 and 16 and 17 and 13 because his problem was, um, motor modulation essentially. Mm. And you learn that from variable practice as opposed to just banging your head against the same thing over and over and over. And so I think some of the guys that improve, they continue to work in that variable practice that they used to get from unstructured play when they were younger, but mm-hmm. that you can lose when you're at the top level because, you know, there's, there's an urgency for running the plays and things like that. 
Yeah, it's funny you say that because there's this other quote you put in your book, and, and now that we're having this conversation, something just clicked in my head. You said the more context in which something is learned, the more the learned creates abstract models, and the less they rely on a particular example, learners become better at applying their knowledge to a situation they've never seen before, which is the essence of creativity. And the thing that this made me think of is um, I tried to learn how to snowboard when I was in my uh, like early 20s, and it just you know, I, I, after I think two seasons, I concluded this is bullshit. Brown people in cold weather are not meant to be to hell with this. Uh, then I became a surfer. And after about five years of surfing, uh, we had a bad surf season here in Southern California and I was losing my mind. If you know anything about surfers, we're not happy people when we're not in the water consistently. And I was like, damn it, I need something to do. And in my mind, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to the mountain and give snowboarding another try. And it clicked like that. And, you know, I mean, I think in the last two, three years, I got to the point where I was doing black diamonds. And I mean, I remember even two years ago, I was like, oh, I would never be able to do a black diamond. But it seems like a lot of the skills from surfing translated. Uh, so I wonder, is that an example of what you're talking about here? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good example of transfer. Transfer yeah. being the term psychologists use for your ability to take skills or knowledge from one area and uh, apply them to an area that you have or an area or a problem that you, oh, there's my my, my six month old, I don't know if you can hear him, but, no um, and can you hear him on your side? I can't actually. Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> um, and, and apply them to either situations or, or problems that you haven't seen before. And mm -hmm. I think the, the finding to keep in mind, it's not a single finding, but sort of a summary of an area of research. And again, I'm, I'm taking this from a researcher named Deidre Gentner. So I don't want to claim this as my insight, but, yeah. uh, is, it, breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. So mm. your ability to take those skills and knowledge and apply them to something you haven't seen before um, is predicted by how broad your training was. And so I think mixing in these different types of motor skills and perceptual skills and things like that really prime you to then be able to learn much faster mm. in uh, when you make like a lateral movement to another area. So that doesn't that doesn't really surprise me. It also makes you less fragile, by the way. Yet another thing that I cut that maybe will end up in the afterward was I spent some time with Cirque du Soleil's physiologists. Mm -hmm. They have an incredible amount of physiology data because you know, they have a lot of former Olympic athletes and um, they have so many shows and they're all wearing like biometric vests and everything. Mm -hmm. And they decided, looking at some of this research about multi-sport, which I think multiple sports is really just a proxy for movement diversity. It doesn't matter yeah. that you're like putting on a jersey of some other sport, but um, they decided to have their performers learn the basics of like three other performers' disciplines. And you know, it's got to be, they have to be, think it's pretty serious to do that, to take away time from these performers training in their main discipline. And they track their injury rates against Canadian gymnastics. It's a Canadian company. And they found it reduced their injury rates by like 30%. They, they, they felt subjectively that it made some of the performers more creative, sort of dabbling in these other disciplines for mm -hmm. designing their own performances. But objectively, it lowered their injury rates like 30%. There's something that, that makes people more anti-fragile about diversifying their movement. And yeah. we can speculate about what that is, but, but I, I bet my guess is that some of it has to do with you know, mixing and practice variability that improves your perceptual expertise and, and your learning. And it's just mm -hmm. like a classic breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. When you in incorporate some variable practice, it makes you better at everything. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about how this transfers to knowledge work, um, because we've been talking about it in the context of, of athletes and it, probably not everybody who's listening to this is an athlete, but there's something you said in, in the book that also struck me as really interesting. You said struggling to generate an answer on your own, even a wrong one, enhances subsequent learning, Socrates was apparently onto something when he forced people to generate answers rather than bestowing them. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, yet we have an education system that really, at the end of the day, punishes people for being wrong because over time, you sort of get trained to be compliant instead of curious. And so, so I wonder, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that? And then, you know, how, how do we take these concepts of sort of developing range? If you're say somebody like me, who is a, a knowledge worker, granted, I can tell you that without a question, you know, surfing and, and snowboarding influence my writing. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that those two things are parallel to the day, because I think the, the habits and sort of, uh, discipline that came out of surfing is very much parallel to how I, how I write every day. Well, I mean, you were also saying, you know, you, you were mentioning the breadth of sort of the backgrounds of the guests you've had Yeah. also, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure interacting with these people, you know, one thing I tell people who don't have much time and they want to, 
you know, say, well, how can I learn about other jobs that might be interesting to me? I'm like, every time you bump into someone who has a job that you're not familiar with, talk, ask them questions as if you had to write a report the next day about mm-hmm. their job. And you'll ask at a different level. I mean, you're doing that for your podcast, yeah. you know, at an even deeper level. So I'm sure that's that's a massive way of well, it. 700 interviews. Of pro- I always wished that I, I wish I could figure out how to do something like a, a brain study to look at what my brain looked like 10 years <laughs> ago prior to this project and what it looks like now. It looked horrible. Now, now it looks great. No, just, <laughs> yeah. I think that, that that's probably fair to say. No, but I mean, but that, that, that really is right. That's, I mean, being interested in a lot of things is, is a yeah. great way to expand your range. And like you said, people do get, you mentioned compliance being, uh, you know, more important than some of the things that, that might actually be more helpful. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at a study by some economist that was looking at personality traits and grades and work. And some of the personality traits were negatively correlated with grades, but positively correlated with income, mm. which tells you that your system's not ideal. You know, there were also traits that were positively correlated with grades and positively correlated with income. But yeah. ideally, you'd get all those things running in the right direction. Right. Right. Or, or, or you would sort of diversify the development pipeline enough that it could fit people with, you know, that it would be less coming out of Taylorism where everyone's kind of getting stamped in the same way off the assembly line. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so I think we should build in more uh, flexibility to how we develop people. And in fact, to use a sports analogy, that's been a huge part of the successful turnarounds that like Australian national sport had and British national sport. So in the lead up to the London Olympics, uh, they, you know, had a woman, this brilliant woman named Chelsea War, who's actually Australian, um, come over to England and help them like improve their development pipelines. Cause they had been doing like very mediocre in Olympics for a long time. And, you know, with their home Olympics coming up, wanted to do better. And one of the main things she did was diversify the pipelines by which they recruited and developed. She said, mm-hmm. right now, we're only getting what she called the fast risers, like the people who show a lot of prowess pretty early. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they're easy to identify. And, and actually, it's often the case that they're, it's just that they go through puberty earlier and they get identified for that reason, as opposed to actually having the highest potential. Um, and in fact, people that go through puberty later are more likely to be taller. So it, wow. like selecting against that is, you know, like, like, like Giannis in the NBA, right? He like uh-huh. went through puberty basically after he got drafted. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it's a late one, you know, and he's, he grew a lot, but so she said the fast risers were okay with like everybody, those people are easy to see. Yeah. It's the slow bakers as she called them, that that's uh-huh. where you have the advantage that if you can diversify your pipeline so that you're not like deselecting people based on your cookie cutter model, mm-hmm. you allow people to sort of find their path a little more and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And they had, I mean, most of their, uh, the impact that you know, they, they had enormous improvement in metals and all these things. And a huge amount of it came from diversifying their pipelines that allowed these slow bakers to come yeah. through. And, you know, and some of them, one of them, I think is this rower who's arguably the, the most dominant athlete in the world. And she had not even rowed at the previous Olympics. I think she's like been, I don't think she's lost in like six years anyway, this woman wow. named Helen Glover, but um, yeah. Last I checked, but so so I, I think that's a good model for a lot of things we do, and it's you know it's a little bit akin again to that talent based branching, but it's basically mm-hmm. just just diversifying so that you're not f- if someone wants to focus in really early and that's they're driven that way and they're a Tiger or yeah. Mozart like I'm not going to tell them I, I don't want to prescribe diversification any more than I want to prescribe specialization right mm-hmm. but but I do think we should diversify the pipeline because yeah. we know it fits a certain kind of person and that's great for them, but a lot of people aren't that type. Yeah. It's funny. It makes me think of something that uh, Robert Greene said to me right after he wrote Mastery. We had him here and he said, you know, the analogy is biodiversity. He said, the more species you have in an ecosystem, the richer that ecosystem is. And he said, no experience in your life uh, should be thought of as wasted. And I, I think that really struck me because I remember that. And you even say, you echoed this sentiment in your book where you say the labs in which scientists had more diverse professional backgrounds were the ones where more and more varied analogies were offered, where breakthroughs were more reliably produced than when the unexpected arose. And it's funny because, you know, this story I may have shared before, and you may have heard it. There's a Google story about this, you know, longstanding policy that for their associate product manager position, you had to be a computer science, like you had to have a computer science degree. And a young Stanford grad who didn't have a computer science degree goes to his boss and says, hey, I want to apply for the program. Can you make an exception? Of course, as you might imagine, they move it up the chain. They say, no, we're not going to make an exception. That guy leaves and his name was Kevin Systrom. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Google then changes the policy after that. Um, but, you know, I, I think this makes a perfect segue to kind of, you know, come to where I think I want to start wrapping up the conversation. But you talk about two things, which are the outsider advantage um, and lateral thinking. And the reason I, I thought of this is because, you know, we'd been looking for a community manager to grow our, our show. And a bunch of people came in who would like social media backgrounds, copywriting backgrounds. And I remembered one of our listeners who was like a super, super fan, um, who'd been a very active participant. And I, I sent her a message on Facebook and she's like, I don't have a background in this. She's like, I'm a, a civil engineer by trade and I do research uh, and I have a PhD. And I said, I think you'll probably be the perfect person for this because what that tells me is that you know how to solve problems. Yeah. And I mean, that's, no, that's right. You know, and I think... I think I was I was just looking at some LinkedIn research recently on a half million members, you know, because they have these great databases so they can do much bigger studies than other people. And it found that one of the most important predictors uh, for who would go on to become an executive was the number of different job functions someone had worked across. Mm-hmm. But, we, but we don't tell people, like, go change a bunch of jobs. I mean, except except for LinkedIn's chief economist, his main recommendation of this research was if you want to be an executive, work across a lot of job functions. But you don't usually hear advice like that, right? Yeah. And I actually think that LinkedIn in some ways unintentionally can contribute to the problem a little bit. And, and let me give you an example of what I mean where, so I write a little bit in the, the book about how the Pat Tillman Foundation was part of the inspiration for, for writing the book where the Pat Tillman Foundation, you know, named after the, the late NFL player who left mid-career to, to become an army ranger and was killed in Afghanistan. Um, it, it gives scholarships to military spouses and veterans for career changes, essentially, to aid career changes. And I'm on the final selection committee now for this. I've gotten like more involved with the foundation every year. And and it's like the final selection committee is like five civilians and, and five military um, or ex-military or current. And first, when we go through these applications, you see what can often look like a sort of disjointed resume a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like some of the people, a lot of the people didn't go right to the military. So they did something and then they leave and go to the military and then they get out and do something totally different. And, and, and I can see like, if you look at their, you know, what is essentially their, their LinkedIn, just the resume, it's hard to find a path. Like what exactly are they doing? Right. It seems like they've just been flitting from one Uh thing to another. And then you go and get down to their essays and it'll be like, you know, something happened and I saw a need. So I joined the military. And then when I was out in the most remote part of the Afghan, you know, mountains translating for people who were in conflict and, and, um, trying to keep them from killing each other, I realized that there's a huge lack of this certain type of communication in rural areas. And that created this new mission for me. So I decided to go, you know, and, and it'll, their, their narratives will tie all this stuff together where you see it really is a progression of personal growth Mm -hmm. in that far from flitting among, you know, ideas, which I don't have a problem with anyway, um, they are adjusting to having learned things from these incredibly profound experiences and saying, this is how I recognized a need and also recognize something I'm good at that I didn't know before. Uh And so once you read those essays, you see, okay, these people are, are much more responsive to the lessons that the world is teaching them than is someone who's just like climbing the linear path. Yeah. But it's but when you just look at the resume, you don't see that. And so I, I wish we could have like a LinkedIn that had sort of a better way to have that uh the narrative of personal growth because it, yeah. it ultimately ends up being much more impressive and you see that they have much more unique skills and a mm-hmm. and a totally different view that they that most of their peers do not have. And they will often be a little bit older mm-hmm. than um, you know, their peers, but they tend to then move very fast once they get in because they have this kind of diverse problem solving skills. You know, I mean, I remember being at dinner with a group of these Dillman scholars and there's like, uh, you know, an ex Navy SEAL who's worried about being behind. I remember one of the, one of the guys who was worried about being all behind is an astronaut now. So he's okay. <laughs> and that was only a couple of years ago. Wow. Um, but, but they're told, you know, like, okay, you're late. Everyone's younger than you. You don't mm. have sort of a linear experience, but that's, that's because they're doing what I think is much more productive, which is that they are recognizing the lessons about themselves and the lessons yeah. about the world and, and finding more profound and fitting goals for themselves through that journey. Yeah. Whereas I think it would not make sense if they did those things and then said, well, I'm just going to kind of ignore those lessons and just like keep forging ahead. It's funny as you're saying that I, I can't help but think that the the one, now I want to write a blog post about this, that you know the one common thread I know exists between every single person I've interviewed is that the path to where they're at was never linear. Not once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and that's that. And it, you know, it's funny because they're that that I think is half the battle of going out and doing you know something entrepreneurial, trying your own thing. And mm-hmm. you know, like I realize even now, you know, I graduated from business school ten years ago. I realize, and I, you know, I, for a while I thought I'm terrified I'll never be able to get a job if it comes down to it. And I realize I am way more valuable now, just due to the diversity of experiences I've had than I ever would have been with just that degree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear. I mean, I, obviously, I that resonates with me a lot, right? When I was leaving the training to be a scientist, basically, mm-hmm. my feeling was, well, that's a loss, you know. And then I end up as a temp fact checker to at Sports <laughs> Illustrated, and I'm six years older than the people I'm doing fact checking for, so yeah. I'm behind by any measure. But suddenly, I realized my rather what I would call my rather ordinary science skills um, were totally extraordinary in the context of a sports magazine. Uh, and I go from temp fact checker to the youngest senior writer there, like very quickly. Mm-hmm. And it was completely that uniqueness. Whereas people who'd sort of more linearly climbed the ladder had to keep trying to linearly climb the ladder because they couldn't, they didn't have access to the kind of shortcut that I did basically. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I feel like you and I could talk all day about this. It's a, it seems like a, a really, really deep rabbit hole. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoy this conversation and and uh, different than the ones I've been having for sure. Yeah, well, people <laughs> have, a, have a feeling people tend to say that. So I have one cool. final question for you, which is how mm-hmm. uh, we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is? The big somebody or something unmistakable? Wait, sorry, say that again. I, yeah, I, no I, what do you second. think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, that makes somebody or something unmistakable. You know, I have this this phrase from a, a philosopher I love named Bernard Suits. And he, in, in this brilliant work he wrote called The Grasshopper, he was, he was trying to define the essence of games and sports and things like that. And previous philosophers had said, there is no one thing that ties them all together. And Suits says, no, you're wrong. It's the voluntary acceptance of unnecessary obstacles. And, and I, I love that phrase just as an approach in general, right? Like I don't ever want to feel comfortable with what I'm doing. I want to continue to voluntarily uh, except unnecessary obstacles. And sometimes when I meet people, I, I try to understand, you know, what obstacles, what unnecessary obstacles they have voluntarily accepted. And I, I tend to think that that is, uh, when you get to that, it's an unmistakable differentiator um, of a lot of people if they've, they've voluntarily accepted interesting, unnecessary obstacles. Mm, amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your insights and all of this with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the books and everything else that you're up to? Uh, DavidEpstein.com and I'm, I'm at David Epstein on Twitter. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.